All right, turn your Bibles to, to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. Haggai, chapter 1. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look there and as well in, in some other passages as we spend time in God's Word today. You may prefer the pronunciation Haggai, that's fine. However you, however you like to say it, say it in your, in your head and I'll say it. Haggai, just make it easy. About 10 years ago, there was a group of fourth grade students at Inner City Baptist Christian School. They had to do a little project. There's a few of those, those guys and ladies here today. Um, they had to do a little project. They had to read a biography and then prepare like a, a float for a parade that reflected that biography. Any of you guys remember doing that? Or ladies? Any of you guys remember that? No, they're like, fourth grade was too long ago. Ten years ago is more than a lifetime for most of them. But uh, my son chose to read a biography by the Scottish missionary to Africa, David Livingston, and um, made his little, his little float for the parade. Livingston was born more than 200 years ago, and he gave his life to serve Christ in exploration of, of Africa for the sake of, of access to the gospel. I had the opportunity to go and stand um, several years ago in, in front of the place where he first, he first, first viewed um, a specific uh, place in now what's Zambia and Zimbabwe. It was called at the time in the Tonga language, Mosi Aotunya, translated the smoke that thundered. Uh, it was there that the great Zambezi River plunges into a gorge that is wider than the river, a single vertical drop of nearly 350 feet at the, its highest point. And uh, Livingston observed that. That incredible waterfall, you've probably seen pictures of it, and he renamed it. What did he rename it? It's called Victoria Falls, right? Victoria Falls after Queen Victoria at the time. Um, Livingston eventually would give his energies and life to exploring the interior of Africa. He died of malaria and dysentery while kneeling beside his cot in prayer. He had the opportunity to talk to some students at Cambridge University in 1857 about the, the benefits of leaving England to pursue what God had asked him and called him to do at the time. And he said this to them, For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk a lot about the sacrifice that I made, spending so much of my life in Africa. He says, Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed rewards in healthful activity, a consciousness of doing good, Peace of mind, the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view. And with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege to serve the Lord. Uh, Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of common conveniences, charities of life may make us pause, cause the spirit to waver, the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Those are the words of Livingston talking about his ministry in, in Africa. One of the surprising things about Livingston, we, we think of him as a great explorer, a great missionary pioneer, but he was really a normal person as a teenager his his father he he had a burden for missions his father encouraged that burden along encouraged his son to give his life in in missions work and and most of us here will probably not be called to explore uncharted regions most regions are charted even by google maps all over the world 
Um, we won't be called to do what Livingston has done, but we will be called to give our lives and, and, our, and our, make our priorities the service of the Lord in gospel work, in gospel ministry, maybe full-time, maybe in our own spheres of influence. And it's never a sacrifice to do these things. It is our sacred duty. It's our calling. And yet sometimes the pursuit of pleasures of this life and other pursuits in the world interfere with that. Our priorities get rearranged. We get busy with, with much in this life. And so we come to the book of Haggai. What does this have to do with, with the mission of the church? It's an Old Testament prophet, and I think it has much to do by way of principle. Here in the first chapter of Haggai, we have an exhortation by this Old Testament prophet to the people to give priority to the work and worship of God so he might be pleased and glorified and they might be blessed by his presence and his providence. These prophets spoke not abstract words. They didn't give existential existential philosophies. They spoke to a real people who struggled to find meaning in their chaotic world, to give priority to what God had called them to do in their place, and make the mission and work of God the number one thing in their life. This sounds familiar. The world never is a friend of grace to help us on to God. The world never allows us to make the number one thing the service of the Lord. It always crowds upon us. Things and circumstances of life crowd within us and without us and take away the priorities that we need to have. Haggai is mentioned here in this book. He's mentioned briefly in Ezra, the book of Ezra as well. Uh, he's linked with Zechariah. He's a post-exilic prophet. He's, he's after the exile. He may have written some psalms as well. Not much else is known about him, but we do have this, this brief message from him at the end of our Old Testaments. One writer said the main use of this chapter is for uh, churches beginning a building program. And I'd like for us to say, well, I guess you could maybe apply it to that, but it's, it's much bigger than that. Because God is not about building a temple or a place or a building. He's about building the temple of God, the living God who is, is the body of Christ. And so he calls us to give priority to, to building the body of Christ in our age, in our day. And through this, God is, is glorified. And again, I want to remind you, my main point is that as the people of God, when we pursue our desires above the priorities of God in our lives, we will find our efforts to be frustrating. We will find them to be unrewarding, unsatisfactory. And that by the provident grace of God. God in His grace allows us not to be satisfied with anything but doing what he's called us to do, primarily. However, when we pursue God's priorities, God is glorified. He's with us in our pursuits, and we find blessing and satisfaction in accomplishing his will. Such a blessing to be aligned with the purposes of God in our life and in our age. Such a blessing to do that. And God in his grace allows us to be blessed in such a way. Let's join God's people here in Haggai and, 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 and join Haggai's call to consider our ways today. Literally, when Haggai says, consider your ways, he means set your heart upon your ways. Think about what you're doing. Think carefully about it. Let God intervene in it and, and do what he's called you to do. Consider your ways. Let's make a heart-searching evaluation of our priorities in our life. Let's look at the present situation in this text and, and what that reveals to us. Let me read Haggai chapter 1. He says, In the second year of, of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord 
came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk or to become satiated. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, said the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, as had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. The story has a great ending, right? As God... Prophet Haggai calls to them to consider their ways. Consider the present situation and what this reveals to us. We see a gracious reminder that God's people are not giving due effort to accomplishing what he had called and given them the ability to accomplish. Here in this case, we we understand what they were to accomplish, right? What's it say they're supposed to do? They're supposed to rebuild the house of the Lord, rebuild the temple. In Jerusalem, it's, it's very clear. This is implied in, implied in a number of phrases in the resulting command of God. Verse 2, he says, um, the house of the Lord is to be rebuilt. He says in verse 4, the house of the Lord lies desolate. So implied, reading between the lines, they were to have built it up already. And we see that as a result of what they do by God's grace and by God's providence. And maybe you, I don't know if you're familiar with this historical context. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but... But under Nebuchadnezzar II, the Babylonian Empire had destroyed Jerusalem. They did have a beautiful temple at one time. The Babylonians came in and, and sacked the temple, destroyed, the, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried the people off in captivity to Babylon. We see some of what happens in some of our other Old Testament books, like Daniel, uh, taking place during this exile, this captivity. The people in their worship was threatened with extinction. Well, God in his providence didn't allow that. In 583 B.C., about 50 years later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, instituted a new policy allowing the Jews, whoever wanted to, and others to return to their homeland and rebuild their centers of worship. So it wasn't only the Jews, but other peoples got to do that as well. In God's providence, the Jews were able to do that. Zerubbabel led about 50,000 Jews back to their homeland. Ezra records this in his book, 
Ezra 3, that Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest built an altar on the ruins of the temple to offer sacrifices again. In the next year, they laid the foundation for the temple to be rebuilt. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. However, when they started doing that, there were adversaries around them. They didn't want to see the Jews become strong again, right? So you can expect opposition to the Lord's work. They discouraged the people. They frightened them. They made accusations, false accusations to, to then Cyrus. And so the people stopped the work of rebuilding the temple. And that work remained stopped until our context here, when Haggai came to remind them of what they were called to do. This was about 16 years later. They had stopped the work, and now the prophet comes and says, listen, we've got to get this going again. This account takes place during the peace of Persia, during the reign of King Darius over the Persian Empire. It's very clear the historical context given at the beginning and end of the chapter. Here, the Jews who had returned to the area had settled there. They started the work, stopped the work, and then they started the work on rebuilding their own lives, their communities. And there was nothing particularly wrong with that. They needed places to live. They needed food to eat. They needed drink to drink. They began rebuilding houses, clearing and cultivating their farmland. But the rapidity and the focus which they gave to this caused Haggai to lament by comparison that the house of the Lord was neglected. His burden was that this be redressed and that the people do all they could in spite of still limited resources to build the house of the Lord that could provide a suitable expression of his presence among them as a testimony of his glory to the whole empire. Just think historically again. If God's people did not have a temple from which went out the truth that that shone the light to the Gentiles at the time, what good were they as God's people? What good was it for them to just live in their houses and do their normal things, plant crops, build buildings, establish families, Go about their activities. What good were they if they were not declaring the glory of God among the people, among the heathen, through the temple worship? And that's what they had forgotten. They would forgotten their major purpose was to be the people of God that declared his glory among the nations. In the Old Testament, that glory went out from a central point, the temple. In the New Testament, we go out and call people to different places, the church of God. So there's some differences, but the main points are not really different. Our calling here today is not to rebuild the temple, right? I mean, Ken Ham will probably eventually build a temple up in Florence, Kentucky. I don't know. Um, But that's not our calling. That's not our calling. What are the priorities of the Christians in our age? What are our driving priorities? What do we need to consider in our ways what might we mean the, be neglecting at times? Well, certainly the very clearest one is the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Our calling is to, to constantly be going and making disciples and establishing churches that plant churches baptizing and teaching churches. We've got to always be doing that. It has to be our priority. Even here, coming into a new building, we, we have to focus on our, our, our plants, you know, our HVAC and everything else. Those are good things. But while we're doing that, we can't neglect the, the ultimate mission of God to plant churches that are planting churches. So we're involved in both at the same time. We keep our priorities in order. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're to live as a holy people, a living sacrifice to God. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As the people of God were to live distinctly holy lives, not conformed to the culture that is around us. We must be easily identifiable as the people of God because of the holiness of our lives, right? That has to be a priority in our lives. doesn't mean we're weird, but we're those who sacrifice. And that, don't, don't miss that. Part of that is not how we look. It's, it's what we do, what we give priority to. A holy sacrifice. We're sacrificial people. Ephesians 2, 2 2.10 says, doing good works to the church and in our culture, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We, we are people who, who use our gifts to build up the church. We recognize that we're gifted by the Spirit so that every part of the church, every joint supplies something lacking in the rest of the body. So we give priority to, to ministry to one another. John mentioned this. How, how, what a blessing it was to him that, that the people of his church didn't give up. They ministered to him in love all along the way. We've got to do that. That has to be a priority in our church, in our lives. We have an impact for good, building up the local church through the use of our gifts. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole, whole body is fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. We take time to speak truth to one another so that we build one another up and we give and receive ministry. We are called very clearly to have as our priority in this dispensation the building up of the body of Christ, the local church and local churches through discipleship, through the evangelism of the lost and the edification of saints. So you can see here the people, God's people, had their mission, we have our mission. Let's make sure it's not neglected. Why was the work being neglected? Why did these people give the response of neglect to the work God had very clearly called them to do? Their response shows their ultimate loyalty. Look at verse 2, Haggai 1. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, <coughs> This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is a very interesting Contrast, don't miss it. The Lord of hosts said this. That was what he was called when he led them out of Egypt, right? He delivered them. The Lord of hosts. They were his people. The Lord of hosts is now saying, not my people, but what does he say? This people. This people is almost a a stab to their heart that they would not be addressed as God's people, but as just another people by the way which they were living. In essence, they had replaced the Lord of hosts as their sovereign king and leader and director with their own desires. They had made sovereigns of themselves. They had become their own people. I like to say every man can make himself a king if he makes his kingdom small enough, right? We can busy ourselves about with our small little kingdom. Might be our house, might be our fan club, might be our hobby, might be our family might even be our, our local church. We can busy ourselves about with our little kingdom, but neglect what the Lord of hosts is calling us to do. We have to be careful not to do that. If God were to look at our priorities and our weekly schedule, would he respond to us with this people or 
What do you say? What do you say? Gladly, my people are doing what I've called them to do. Their response shows their apathy for the work of God as well. In verse 2, they say, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Uh, you know, we, we read this text and I think we wonder, what exactly were they waiting for? Right? Were they waiting for, you know, the Home Depot truck to show up and drop all the timber off? Were they waiting for no opposition at all? Were they waiting until they got everything done that they needed to get done? I think some of this might be circumstantial. They were people, there were still people opposing them around them. They were struggling to have their crops be fruitful, right? They were struggling to have their houses be comfortable enough. They were probably trying to reestablish their city, the glory of Jerusalem. Circumstantial, but it could have been a spiritual explanation as well. Some people think perhaps they were making a pious excuse. A God, we're waiting for you to lead. We're waiting for the time to be very clear. Waiting for an open door. We've put the fleece out. We're waiting for it to be wet or dry. The discharge of our duty is not really our fault. It's your fault, God. You haven't moved enough. You haven't done enough. You haven't made it clear enough. There's an aptness for us to misinterpret. Matthew Henry says this. There's an aptness for us to misinterpret providential discouragements in our duty as if they amounted to a discharge from our duty when they're only intended for the trial and exercise of our courage and faith. It is bad to neglect our duty, but it's much worse to vouch providence for the patronizing of our neglects. And this is what can sometimes be wrong with open-door theology. If the door opens wide and the path is laid out clear, then that's the way I'm going to go. When we meet any kind of opposition, any kind of difficulty, we say, well, it must not be God's will. When we've truly been given God's will, very clearly, and God says, go through much difficulty, and I am with you, I give you authority, and I'm with you until the end of the age. Someone once said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? Much difficulty produces much fruit. They had a providential uh, spiritual explanation. It was really pietistic. It was not actual. Essentially, their excuse amounted to procrastination and selfishness. And we got to say, what, I got, I, as I studied this text, I said, I, I, need to, I need to preach on this text because I need the truth of it myself. I need to be reminded, am I keeping my priorities in the right place? Or am I making providential or circumstantial excuses for not doing primarily what God has called me to do in all its forms? Sometimes we can say, man, I've got to focus on my kids. You know, 16 years, that's pretty much how much it takes for, to get your kids from 0 to 16, right? 0 to 16 is getting them towards adulthood. I've got to focus on my family. I can't, I can't do the work of the Lord. I can't give priority to that. I've got my kids and all their, all their leagues and everything else, you know, all their needs and, and Legos and everything. Um, I've got to get my career on track first. As soon as I get my career, as soon as I finish college, as soon as I get my career on track, figure out where I'm going to live, who I'm going to marry, how many kids I'm going to have, where I'm, what kind of house I'm going to buy. As soon as I can get that established, then I can give my attention to prioritizing the work of the Lord. We've all been guilty of that kind of thinking as well. My stuff. I have to get enough for retirement. Do you ever see what kind of trap that can be? Man, I gotta make enough so I can save enough, so I can have enough, so that when I get old, 
you know, I don't have to go in a government-assisted living facility. I mean, I can have a comfortable uh, oldness. You know, and, and then we're dead, and the mission's over. And what good is it? What good is it? God's response shows the true reason for their failure. However, he points right to their heart, and he said, they had supplanted God's work with their own. They had replaced the priorities of God with their own priorities. They had replaced the pursuit of God's pleasure and glory with their own pleasure. They had replaced a desire to proclaim the glory of God with seeking their own comforts and the accumulation of their own possessions. This is made very clear with some pretty, pretty practical examples. In verse 4, he says, It's time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. That is, while the work of the temple had ceased, they had undertaken their own construction activities. The houses they were building were both luxurious in their appointments. With, with irony, the prophet speaks of the rich paneling they've installed saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies desolate? They had, the point is, we could argue what the paneling was and what exactly that means, but the point is they had they'd gone beyond providing uh, a comfortable and, and what they needed, shelter, for, for actually appointing all of it before they had even began the work of building God's house. God is not so much saying paneling of houses is wrong. Most of us would say paneling is outdated, but paneling is not necessarily wrong. He is saying that the effort they have gone to to finish their own places, provide for their own comforts, promote their own prosperity was in direct contrast with the effort they had made to provide a place of worship and a place where God's light could shine forth to the heathens that were around them. Verse 9, he says this, each of you runs to your own house. The end of verse 9. Or the ESV, I think, I'm reading from the New American Standard, the ESV says, everyone busies himself with his own house while my house lies in ruin. One person said to me once, and I don't know who originally said this, but it's a great quote, beware the barrenness of a busy life. It's probably in Proverbs 32 somewhere. Sometimes we can get so busy about the things that cry for our attention that we neglect the most important things. We've all been guilty of that. We're all guilty of that today. If I had an invitation, we'd all have to come forward. Okay, but it's still something we have to be mindful of. Running to our own house, busying ourselves with our own house, while God's house, or God's work lies in ruins. God's call was clear on their life to make it a priority to provide a place of worship and witness as his covenant people. This was replaced by them busying themselves with their own comforts and affairs. No, felt, no, no doubt they felt they needed this. What? What are we allowing in our lives to supplant the clear call of God in our lives? What is taking the place of the time that could be used for evangelism, worship, and service in the church of God? You know, I love to read, but I don't read like I should. I don't read as much as I should. One, one theologian said this, the great opposition to reading is what I allow to fill my time instead of reading. That's, that's deep, isn't it? <laughs> the great opposition to reading is what, what do I do instead of reading? Oh, okay. It's true. You're right. Amen. He said, don't just add reading to your to-do list. Stop doing the things that keep you from doing it and do it. Okay? Wow. Okay. Someone said the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That happens, right? You've heard that? I mean, this, oh, I got to take care of it. Oh, I got to take, oh, and then the things you really need to do get neglected. Elizabeth Elliot said, the will of God is not something you add to your life. It's a course you choose. 
You either line yourself up with the Son of God, or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. Another writer said, when we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Did you know there might be good things that might drop out of our lives if we reprioritize the work of God? There might be good things that there's nothing wrong with them. Nothing wrong with them. As a matter of fact, they're good in their place. They may actually drop out of our lives. Our love for the Lord will govern the claims for our affection, the demands of our time, the interests we pursue. We've got to be aware of this in our life. The order of our priorities. God's people were not giving priority to what God had called them to. Second point, God's providence is being shown to frustrate the efforts of the people as they neglect the work of the Lord. And I, I want to point out today, I think this is a definitive work of God's grace in their life. The frustration of God's providence in their work and in their daily lives was a definitive evidence of God's grace in their life. God frustrated the efforts they were giving in substitution for what they should have primarily been doing. God reveals what they're pursuing instead of prioritizing his calling in their life. They'd given great effort to their agricultural work. Look at verse 6. It says, you have sown much. They had plenty of provisions. He says, you eat and you drink. They have plenty of clothing. They put on clothing. They're earning wages. Okay, they're, they're earning wages of some sort. It says, you, you earn wages. God reveals what they're pursuing. Agriculture, provision, clothing, wages. All good things in themselves, right? But God reveals that since they're not accomplishing his work as the number one priority in their life, they're actually not gaining satisfaction from the good things they're getting. Right? Though they're sowing much, look at verse 6, though you sow much, you harvest little. I bought this big bag of grass seed to put on our lawn. Huge bag. Cost a lot of money. Spread it out like the instruction said. I'm still waiting for it to grow. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Well, so hopefully it'll get, grow next week, you know? Maybe next week. Though they're sowing much, they're gathering little. They eat and drink, but they're not actually gaining satisfaction says you eat, there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, there's not enough to become drunk or to become satiated, to become satisfied. You know, they have plenty of food, but they're not satisfied with the food they have. They're, they're not actually being warmed from their clothing. You put on the clothing, you have clothing, but no one's warm enough. No one's warmed. And you earn wages, and it's like putting it in a purse with holes. You know, it's like the money's coming in. There should be enough there, but it's like, where does it all go? Have you ever read a more, more practical verse than this for how we sometimes feel in this life which we live? We, we should have enough. We should have enough to be satisfied. We should have enough to be warmed. We should have enough money to provide for our needs. But it seems it so easily flows away, doesn't provide for our needs. And I think God tells us that their continued wrong priorities are actually bringing not his blessing but his opposition to them. Verse 9 indicates a selfish expectation. You look for much. Behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. Why is this? This might surprise us, but God is the actor in this next sentence. He says, I blow it away. Why? Because my house lies desolate. 
They were putting all this effort into building their houses, planting their crops, clothing their children, eating and drinking, and God blew away the satisfaction they should have experienced from those good things because they weren't maintaining his priorities. They weren't focusing on doing what he had called them to do first, that is, to rebuild his temple. God reveals in his providence their continued wrong priorities brought about his direct opposition. This shows he blew, blows it away. Verse 10 and 11 as well, enlarge upon this. Therefore, because of you, because of what they've done, the sky has withheld its dew. The, the dew that should naturally come to help those crops be productive was withheld by God's hand. The earth has withheld its produce. It wasn't doing what God had created it to do because of God's opposition. Even God called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of their hands. God had called for a drought. Because they had refused to prioritize the work of God in their life, God had actually withheld by his providence and even his direct hand here, not just providence, but his direct hand, withheld the blessing from their lives that they should have experienced by doing what what people do in God's created order. He caused drought in every area of life they were using for their own pursuits. God is gracious in his judgments. He's being gracious to these people. Had they failed to pursue his glory and work and all the while gain material prosperity, they would have continued to live for their own pleasure, raise children that live for their own pleasure, growing up in houses and crops and money and food and drink with no temple, no center for worship. God halts this generation and graciously calls them to repentance. We should thank God for his grace. If you're, if you're here today and you're just, you're just not satisfied with what's going on, think, God, are you, are you using that dissatisfaction to reveal to me that maybe I need to rearrange my priorities? Uh, are, you, are you using the, the fact that I, I seem to not have enough even when I should? Are you using that to remind me that maybe I need to reorder some of my life's goals? And a lot of you are college students. Think, I, want to, I want to encourage you if, you, if you do the things God has called you to do, if you, make, if you make those the things that you commit your life to, God will take care of everything else. God will take care of everything else. But if you don't, God in his providence, his gracious providence, will frustrate your efforts until you align with what he's called you to do. That's why a raise in salary is never really enough for the person that is dissatisfied with what God's doing in their life. Okay, you always find something else to spend it on. That's why the house is never big enough. The car is never fast enough. That's why plastic surgery exists. There's good reasons for it, but for the most part, people are just like, I'm dissatisfied with the way I look. Okay, that dissatisfaction is a reminder that God, you're not aligned with God's creative purposes for your life and God's call and his commission in his church. This is the Old Testament. And, and if you feel I'm making too much of an application to our life today, then, then make your, your application. Search the scriptures and see what God says. But I think we see very clearly this same idea reflected in what Jesus says to Peter in Mark chapter 10. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, no one has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or family for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms and along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he reminds the Corinthians that as they give generously to the needs of, of, of the gospel, the gospel ministry to Paul and others, other churches that had need, they will see God bless that generosity through providing for their needs. These principles are very clearly outlined as well in the New Testament. Um, it's a real blessing to be frustrated by the providence of God so that we realign our priorities and see God's blessing. Uh, consider the changes needed, is the last thing that Haggai calls them to, and the results that that will bring. In, in verse 12 and following, we see the people of God respond in the right way, thankfully. They respond in the right way. They chose to obey the Lord by doing what he had called them to do. From the leaders down to the remnant of the people, they chose to obey the voice of the Lord. They responded to the prophet. They made changes. They recognized God's providence in their life, and they made changes. They wanted to be aligned with God's work. They needed this reminder. The reason they did this is given in verse 8. Haggai says from God, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I, that God, may be pleased with it and be glorified. They recognized that they needed to primarily live for the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, and then they would see God provide for their needs and give them satisfaction. This reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. You may have debatable issues. You may be not sure where to put your money, where to put your energy, where to put your priorities. Um, do it under God's providence, but do it to God's glory and keep his mission as primary in your life. And I think you'll see God bless that. Perhaps we're here today and we need to reevaluate our priorities. Perhaps you need to be encouraged that you are having the right priorities because sometimes it's a struggle. It feels countercultural. Choose to obey the Lord and do what he's called you to. Choose to be conscious of the sovereign providence and grace of God in your life. Here it says in verse 12, the people showed reverence for the Lord. The word translated showed reverence is translated they feared the Lord in other, other versions. They came to say, God, you're the God we should serve. You're the God we should honor. You're the God we should follow. When you tell us to do something, we need to do it. You're the God that can both withhold blessing and can give blessing. And we recognize that. We need to have the fear of the Lord. And then third, finally, enjoy the blessings of God as we obey him. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. This is not a call to, to some kind of constricted living, some kind of monasticism, some kind of asceticism. This is a call to enjoying the good things God has given us, to enjoy our families, to enjoy our clothes, to enjoy our houses, to enjoy our crops, to enjoy eating and drinking. But do it in its proper place and proper order while giving our primary focus and priority to the work of God. Enjoy the blessings of God as we obey him. God promises to them that he is with them. Verse 13, what a blessing to hear after what they had just heard. God says, this people, consider your ways. And later he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. What a blessing for them to hear that. God is with them. Not only the promise of his presence, but of his active blessing in their life. He's, he promised to support them, to sustain them, to provide for him, to give them satisfaction in their work. God is with us. And he promises that in the Great Commission too, right? I am with you for just a little while. 
even to the end of the age, the end of the age and beyond forever, right? God is with us. And God enlivens and encourages them in their work in living. He says he stirred up the spirit of all the people as well. He encourages them. They've been discouraged. I mean, you can imagine for 16 years they've been discouraged. And part of that is because of the grace and frustration of God on their lives. But now he stirs their spirit up. He encourages them. He stirs them to action. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, their God. This is nothing short of the divine empowering that enables us to accomplish his will and his work. God gives that to these people. He gives that to us. He gives us the ability to do what he's called us to do. Do we see the prioritizing of what is clearly revealed in God's word, in God's will for our life as a sacrifice? Do we see it as, I'll get to it when I get to it? As soon as I take care of my business, it's all around me. Clearly, we need the presence and the blessing of God to accomplish his will. And he will give it to us. Let's make the mission of Christ the center of our life. Making disciples. Let's make the local church a priority in our life. As you do, you're here, obviously, preaching to the choir. We don't have a choir, but I'm preaching to them. Make serving one another, speaking the truth to one another, some, a point of emphasis in our time, the way we arrange our time. I find myself easily, and I, I spend time with people all the time. That's, I'm a counselor, but, but sometimes with people in the church, I find it easy not to have time for that, and I'm sorry about that. I apologize for that, and I need to make time for that. We need to declare God's glory among those who are lost, display the gospel in our home and family relationships. We need to be a generous people who give of our resources for the spread of the work of Christ and the gospel and for the good of all people, especially those of the household of Christ. Hudson Taylor, another missionary, says this, God has called me to spend my life in missionary service in China. An older minister said, how do you propose to go there? Taylor says, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's likely I shall need to go as the 12 and the 70 disciples did in Judea without stick bag, food, or money, relying on Christ who has sent them to supply their needs. The minister says, ah, my boy, as you grow older, you'll become wiser than that. Such an idea would do very well in the days when Christ himself was on earth, but not now. Hudson Taylor was then 18 years old. Many years later, he recalled that incident and he wrote, I have grown older since then, but not wiser. I am more and more convinced that if we were to take the directions of our master and the assurance he gave to his first disciples more fully as our guide, we should find them just as suited to our times as to those in which they were originally given. May God help us prioritize his work.